Welcome everyone, I'm Joel Van Hoogen, and this is The Bread of Life. This radio ministry is sponsored by Church Partnership Evangelism and its local missions fellowship in Boise, Idaho, The Bread of Life Church. If you're looking for a place to give to that is taking the gospel in direct and personal evangelism throughout the world, I'd have you consider Church Partnership Evangelism. You can learn more by going to breadoflifeboise.org or traincpe.org. To say that God loves you unconditionally is true, though it can be misconstrued. We do not mean that God's love has no conditions to be met. Because God loves us, He wants the best for us, and that best aligns with His work to make us more and more like Himself, like His Son, holy and Christ-like. No, God's love pursues a new condition for us. But when it came to us, as Romans 5, 6-10 declares, It came when we were enemies, sinners, ungodly, and in that condition, God loved us unconditionally. His love always calls us away from our sins. But first, when His love comes to take hold of us and take us and bring us unto Himself, His love finds us in those sins and it suffers for them while we're in those sins. It's a love that is sacrificed for us without any condition being met on our part, before the gift of His saving work and before the gift of Him retrieving us out of our sins and before the outpouring of His life in order to make us holy and to sanctify us and draw us that we might live for Him and worship Him and honor Him and glorify Him before all that, His love just simply found us in our sins and suffered for us in that place. No condition. It came to us unconditionally. Here's another thing Paul shows us in this passage. He shows us that not only was God's love for us without conditions, but it was also a love that is without counterpart. That is, there's nothing like it. There's no imitation to it. There's nothing to compare with it. It's a love that is without counterpart. He says this, Some might barely consider dying for an upright person, a person who lifts up a good and righteous standard in the community. You might consider dying for them, and and maybe even more so, you might die for a person who is generous or benevolent, a good person. But God proves His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There's a lot of ideas and expressions of people self-sacrificing themselves for others throughout novels, throughout our cinematography or our movies, throughout our literature, throughout the folk tales that are told to us. You can read the book, The Last of the Mohicans by James Finnemore Cooper, and you'll see that the great story leads to a great sacrifice of one individual for a lovely couple that's in love with one another, and he gives his life for them. Or you can read The Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens, and you can see how there's this pathetic man who at the end of it finds a woman of great virtue and who is in love with another man, and he sacrifices her life for them in order that they might continue on with one another. You can read stories like this over and over again. You can see it repeated over and over and over again. These themes, these stories of men who will sacrifice themselves for some great principle and some great love and for people in it, and it happens in real life too. But nothing like this happens. Nothing like this happens. A love so profound and so deep that it meets us not 
deserving of saving, but deserving of death and that eternal, who dies for us while we are transgressing against his will and living in sin. Christ demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's, that's the story that's brought before us here. A God who gives himself to us in the midst of all of our animosity towards him and all of our sin towards him. And I don't think we know or can understand how truly awful sin is. In fact, the reality is we don't know and begin to appreciate how truly awful sin is until someone sins against us. We can read the newspapers. We can tabulate all the people that are dying in the streets in some city. We can look at all the crimes that take place where people are rushing in, looting some store, and we can tisk, 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 and ask ourselves, what is the world coming to? But Then let somebody break into your home and rob you. Let somebody violate you. Let someone sin against you. And not only do we tisk, tisk about where the world is coming to, at that moment the world comes crashing down in our heads. Everything is turned upside down, and it's terrible, and it's awful. They lied to me, and they stole from me, and they defrauded me, and they broke their promise to me, and they betrayed me, and they violated me. And now it's a terrible thing. A terrible thing. When it happens to you, when it happens to you, sin is a terrible thing. Have you ever thought that every sin that is ever committed is committed above everything else as a direct affront and assault to God? That every sin is against God. David came to realize that. When he confessed the sin, he said, Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. God, ultimately it's at your feet and it's before you and it was against you that this took place. And the fact is that when people sin against us, we don't like it. But to some extent, I hate saying it, we can sympathize with it. We can even somehow regulate living in a world like this because we're sinners. We see some approximation of that sin in our own lives, in our own selves. We understand something of the compromise that takes place. We can be indignant and we can stomp about it, but still, once we get back and recoil from it for a moment, it has some kind of, some kind of similitude to our own experience in our own lives. But God is completely holy and pure in every way. God is all good and all righteous. God is a pure eyes, it says, to even look upon sin. Even the heavens and the highest heavens are unclean in His sight. And God has only a well-disposed desire for the things that He's created and made. He desires for it to flourish in its worship of Him and its knowledge of Him and its experience of Him. Everything that is not taking us towards Him is taking us into the world. That's what worldliness is. It's sin. It's all around us. Yet we become numb to it. God doesn't. You can even become numb to the assaults against your own self. Kind of develop a bit of a callus against the injustices of life and just put your head down and plow through. God can't. It's an affront to Him. No calluses around Him. Sin is awful. We won't know what sin is entirely. We'll never know what sin is entirely. But here is the God who cannot become accustomed with sin, who we sin against, and our sin is a direct reproach against Him. Every sin that we commit is an assault against His character and His nature. He alone knows the awfulness of sin. And all sinners are marked by that sin. And yet it's sinners 
not respectable individuals, not righteous individuals, not benevolent individuals, selfish sinners who assault God with their sins. These are the ones that he loved and died for. That's who he died for when he died for us, for you and I. Here's another thing that Paul says. Not only is it an expression that is beyond counterpart or without comparison, and as we said, it's a, it's a love that comes to us without any conditions, but Paul then intimates that God's love, when it's received by those who have received him and believe in him and are redeemed, that it becomes a love that issues forward without constraint. It just keeps pouring out upon us. If when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, Paul writes, through the death of his son, much more being reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. There's this outpouring of salvation, this very thing that Paul has talked about earlier, this access into grace that just keeps pouring out upon us and will project itself out into the time in which we are brought into the full glory of God's very being and we'll be glorified in the outpouring of that grace. He's just saying, listen, it's not constrained now. It just will unceasingly, unendingly flow out to us, the love of God. If God could love you, and God could bring His love to you when you were sinners, rebelling and assaulting Him. Think now that He saved you and redeemed you, the unabated flow of love that is yours. That's what He's saying. It's unconstrained. It's not drawn back. It will not end. Out of the infinite riches of Jesus, He just keeps giving and giving and giving again. He didn't withhold Himself from you when you were a sinner. Will He withhold anything from you now that you're His child? He loves you, loves you with an unconstrained love. That's what Paul's writing about him. How wonderful, how glorious. Now, the second thing I want you to look at here is, I want you to consider the love of God and how God addressed us. The love of God and how God addressed us. Up to this point in time, as we've been looking through the book of Romans, Paul has been trying to demonstrate the complete sinfulness of men, sinful in their idolatry, sinful in their false morality, sinful in their religious activity, completely incapable in any way of ever saving themselves, ever delivering themselves. At the end of Romans chapter 1, he gives this degrading picture of the idolatry of men that first they worship the image of men, and then they worship the image of four-footed things, and then they worship the image of slithering, crawling things. It's like their idolatry is just getting more and more degenerate, and with it their behavior becomes more and more degenerate and wicked, and then he points out to the moralist who thinks he's above all those things that he's in the same boat, he's in the same trajectory. And then he points out to the religious Jew who thinks, yeah, but I'm a religious Jew. No, you're in the same situation as well. And so he comes around to Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 19, where at the end of it he says, all the world is guilty before God. And he demonstrates that they are in the same descriptive setting. They have the same heart seething in sin as that wicked idolater lays it out before them, and he does this all to demonstrate that they are rightly under the just wrath of God and that there is no way that they can save themselves and deliver themselves. There is only an answer by being justified or made right through faith in Jesus Christ alone. There's no work they can do. There's no labor they can do. There's no ethic they can follow. There's no religious group that they can align themselves with that will remove this sin from their life. They just have to put their faith in Jesus Christ. And so up to this point in time, he's arguing for the necessity of being justified by faith in Jesus Christ alone. But now Paul changes his view. He's talking about the same things, but now he's arguing it in a different direction. 
now he's arguing that in all this, the love of God is supremely shown to us. And because God's love is supremely shown to us, once you believe and trust in Him, you know you're secure in Him. You weren't secured by your works and your labor and your ethic and your religion or your religious alignment with individuals. You were lost from Him and you were drifting from Him and there was no hope for you and there was no way for you and you were an enemy of God and God loved you still. He gave Himself for you. And so in believing and trusting in Him, you're secure. You can secure yourself in that promise. And look how He presents this love of God and how God addresses us. He points out, the way that he's making this argument prior to this time is to point out, while he's making this idea that you cannot save yourself except through what Christ has done at the cross, he's had to prove that no matter what you think of yourself, you're really an enemy of God. You're really a sinner. You're really an individual who is so marred in your fallen state that you're marred creatures of God's purpose. You can't retrieve yourself. As a result, you're unable to save yourself. And now Paul takes that very point that he's made, that very argument he's made, this very thing that he's had to present before the people so that they wouldn't trust or rest in anything they could do in order to point them to the cross. And now he shows how God has addressed them in a wonderful way that I think is wonderful. Let's look at this more quickly. God knows, God declares it in this passage that we were enemies with God. Verse 10, when we were enemies, we were reconciled. This speaks of our ongoing antagonism towards God before we came to him. The reason that we repulsed away. Thank you for joining us at the Bread of Life, where we gather to feast on God's Word. If these messages are feeding your soul, let us know. Go to breadoflifeboise.org and follow the links to contact us with a message of encouragement. Until the next time, may God bless you.